All right, so uh, before we begin, uh, a word from our co-sponsor and provider for the venue today, which is very important because we wouldn't be without them, uh, Jamie Davidson Craig, who's the Executive Director of the Manny Cantor Center at Educational Alliance. Would you come to the podium? Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Manny Cantor Center. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Well, welcome. Um, as Stefan said, my name is Jamie Davidson Craig, and I'm the executive director here at Manny Cantor. I'm so pleased to welcome you to tonight's forum. Um, many of you know that we serve thousands of Lower East Side community members daily. Um, we are a preschool that start as early as six months. We have older adult services, including serving two meals a day to hundreds of older adults every day. We have a teen center with a regulation-sized gym. We have an art school where you can take a ceramics class, a painting class. And finally, we have a family resource center where we provide holistic wraparound social services to hold, to support whole family systems. So we do a lot here. Um, but one of the most important parts of our work is the civic engagement piece. All of us here at NCC believe that it is our duty to make sure that Lower East Side residents not only have what they need to survive, but have what they need to thrive. And civic engagement has always been a crucial part of that mission, particularly engaging communities that have historically been disenfranchised from civic power. And so with that, I just want to thank you all for being here. Just by showing up, you all play an integral role in this work. Um, a huge thank you to our participants um, for taking the time tonight to share your plans and insights with us. We appreciate it. Um, and of course, a huge, huge thanks and hugs to APA Voice, not only for organizing tonight's event, not just for organizing tonight's event, um, but also for your stewardship and leadership throughout the community. We don't know where we'd be without you, so thank you. Um, and with that, I will turn the mic back over to Stefan to get us started. Thank you again for being here. All right, so it's not often you get all the candidates for this district in one place, so let's not waste any time and get right into this. Um, welcome to APA Voice Candidates Forum for City Council District 1, the best district. Uh, Asian Pacific Americans voting and organizing to increase civic engagement is a nonpartisan civic engagement coalition representing community organizations in New York City that seeks to empower the Asian Pacific American community to build a just and inclusive society for all. Asian Americans make up one-third of the total population in Council District 1. Um, in the past decade, Asian American voter participation in the city has tripled and is anticipated to rise further. During today's forum, all the candidates will be afforded the opportunity to address the pertinent issues facing the Asian American communities of Chinatown, Lower East Side, and convey their concerns and priorities for the years ahead. So during this forum, I'll ask questions submitted by sponsoring and co-sponsoring organizations, as well as a live audience, you folks. Um, those are on the index cards, by the way, that you can fill out for the end. Uh, we'll collect them in an hour, select a few uh, that represent, you know, not as redundant, some of these questions might be redundant, because I think you all have some similar concerns, and so if you don't get your question asked, it's because there's probably gonna be a few that sound alike with the light, okay? Um, and with that being said, I'd like to invite to the stage May for the roles and responsibilities of the council members. May, are you here? 
Hi, good evening, everyone. So I'm going to talk about what does a city council member do? The city council is a lawmaking, is the lawmaking branch of New York City government. It has uh, 51 members uh, that serve 51 districts. So that's one member per district. Um, they each serve for a term of four years, and it's up to two consecutive terms. They make laws by introducing and voting on bills that can become laws if signed by the mayor. They help decide how the city spends its money um, on everything by negotiating and approving the city's annual budget. It could be about schools, sanitation, the police, the fire department, the buildings, the housing, the parks, the health services, the social service, the culture, business, and transportation, and much more within our city. They monitor the New York City government agencies that carry out government laws and policies, agencies that you may interact with every day. They're part of the city's land use process, meaning they make decisions on the city's development, particularly the space and the land. Um, and, Okay, they also serve the people in their district. They should have offices where they can, where we can talk, where we can contact and talk to someone if we have a problem or issue that we're concerned about. City council members are an important resource, representative and voice for us in city government. After voting on election day, we hope that you will get to know what a city council member does and engage with them throughout their entire time in office. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. That's all this feedback. Is that better? Thanks. And I will say, this is a fantastic turnout for candidates. Okay, uh, so with that being said, now it's time. No, no, I have one more. Okay, so ranked choice voting is somewhat new and a little bit complicated. So you guys should all know how that works. Um, that's part of the very fun part of the end of this forum. So to explain to us, ranked choice voting is what? Anybody who thinks about Stefan. I'm Lloyd Fang from the Coalition for Asian American Children of Families, ACF, and we're a proud member of the APA Voice Coalition. So I'm going to keep this section brief, but I just wanted to make sure that everybody here is on the same page about what to expect out of this election. And so this is City Council District 1, uh, which has an active primary for the Democratic primary. There's no active primary for the Republican uh, election since there's only one candidate. I just wanted to clarify. Um, and so uh, you will only be eligible to vote in this primary if you are a current registered Democrat. The last day to register to vote in this primary is June 17 for new voters. The candidates who appear on the Democratic line are Ursula Jung, Susan Lee, Christopher Marte, the incumbent, and Poi Stewart. Um, that you can see them all here. Um, and so for the general election, the general election is on November 7th, or Tuesday. Um, any registered voters could vote in the general election regardless of party affiliations. Um, and the last day to register to vote, pretty important, is October 28th. Um, the candidates who appear on the general election um, uh, will be you know, one of the four Democratic uh, primary candidates and then Helen Chu uh, on the Republican ticket. 
Okay, and so take, you can feel free to take your phone out and you know, scan this QR code to identify uh, where your actual poll site is within the district. Um, and you know, feel free to take a look at this. We have information on this on the table by the door um, in case you want to take a look at this later. And so what is ranked choice voting? So as Stefan said, this is a pretty new feature of New York City elections. So thanks to the efforts of many groups like Gay Voice and you know, uh, CPA, OSE, and other community groups um, and advocates, uh, you know, we have ranked choice voting now um, for primary and special elections for the offices of mayor, public advocate, comptroller, borough president, and the city council seats. Um, thanks to an amendment in the city charter approved by voters in 2019. So voters can rank up to five candidates in order of preference instead of casting just a single vote. So this is you know, more choices, your, your vote basically goes a longer way than just a single person. And so how does this actually work? So um, you can rank up to five candidates in order of preference instead of choosing just one. Um, if a candidate receives more than 50% of first choice votes, they are the winner. Now, if no candidate earns more than 50% of per, per, sorry, first choice votes, then counting will continue in ranks. At the end of each round, a candidate with the fewest votes will be eliminated. If you rank that candidate first, your vote will then go to the next highest ranked candidate on your ballot, and then this process will continue until there are only two candidates left. The candidate with the most votes then wins. Now, how do you mark your actual ballot? So, as I said, you can rank as many or as few candidates as you like. Um, so, you have up to five, right? So, I could, if I don't, if I just wanted to vote for one person, I could just pick one person and call it a day. You know, but I can go up to five, right? Um, so, you have to choose one candidate for each column. First choice, you know, being your favorite candidate, and then second choice in the second column, and so forth, um, as indicated in the diagram. Up to five. And so here we have some examples of what not to do. So do not do this when it comes time to fill out your ballot. So first, don't fill in more than one oval. Oh, sorry. Don't fill in more than one oval for a candidate, right? So what you see on the left, first column, second column. Make, don't do this, right? Make sure it's like one candidate per row. Um, so this is not good. Um, second, don't give more than one candidate the same ranking, right? This would not make sense. Um, this would be you know, you want to make sure your ballot goes the full way. And then third, make sure you actually mark your ovals in completely. Um, <coughs> okay, so this is a bit fun. So if you want to take out your phone, you can uh, scan the QR code uh, either on one, you know, one of the little booklets you picked up or, you know, open on the screen. But we can do a practice run of what ranked choice voting is like based on your favorite dim sum. Yeah, so not high stakes at all. <laughs> so take a minute, uh, and, and as you said, you heard from the candidates, it's high stakes choice. Alright, let me get it like two seconds. Oh, it's also on the phone now. Let's see what we got. Oh. Nobody threw it out. <laughs> oh, you did? 
address quality of life issues, expand quality education, invest in real economic development, and also provide robust constituent services. Thank you. 大家好. Hello, everyone. My name is Councilmember Christopher Marte. I want to thank all the nonprofits that made today possible, and thank you for Seth and Kim for hosting uh, this candidate forum. I am so proud and so honored to represent this district. I was born and raised on the Lower East Side. My parents immigrated here from the Dominican Republic. My dad was a bodega owner, and my mom was a garment worker. And so, for me to stand in front of you today, for me to represent you in City Council just really shows that the American dream, the New York dream, is possible. When I ran two and a half years ago, I ran on a message to say that we need desperately more affordable housing in our district. We gotta make sure that we can remain in place. I ran on a platform of making sure that we had sanitation that was fully funded and our streets were clean, and also that you had a council member that was visible. Someone that wasn't gonna be at your door on election day, but then you'll never see again. And you guys have seen me a lot in the past year and a half. And I'm committed to doing the work. And later today, I'll tell you what we've been doing and what we're going to do. Thank you. Hello, New York. I'm Helen Kier. I'm immigrant from China. I'm the first generation of immigrants. And I'm immigrant from China and study graduate schools at Columbia University. My son David and I, we love New York. However, ask yourself today, do you feel safer? Do you feel you can afford more things? Do you feel you have more money in your pocket? Do you feel the pressure of rising rent? Indeed, New Yorkers no longer feel safe or enjoy our beloved city, unfortunately, due to rising crimes and higher and higher cost of living. So 250,000 retirees, I'm calling you. Your insurance plan is being shorthanded by the city council and the mayor's office. And who is going to stand up for you? I will. And 80% of the kids failing in their grades who will stand up for the public school kids? I will. Our senior care, homeless care, and mental illness care are all not managed effectively. So if we want better change, why do we keep voting the same thing again and again? Time. I'm a Republican. I ask for your vote on November 7th. Thank you. My name is Pui Stewart. I have three kids in my family. They are 11 years old, 10 years old, and 7 years old. I'm pretty handful with all these kids. Going back to, you know, my candidate, Helen Hill, talking about education. I'm very worried about the education. I'm also the teachers of special education in New York public schools. In our New York public school, talking about the chancellor, he did the best work ever. I have received a lot of information from the chancellor that we have to stand by for next year education. 
be standing by for the next year education, 2023 and 2024. We're not worrying about the education. We gotta worry about the budget. So right now we have a lot of non-citizens, people coming into it. We hope that the incumbent, Christopher Martin, be able to take care with the Mayor Adam. I saw Mayor Adam yesterday in Flushing. He's doing well. He got positive thinking. He knows what he's doing. Time. But thank you. So I'm going to take this moment to remind the candidates that there is time limits on this. Your timer is going to be right here. And this is important because this next section, there's 90 seconds per question. I will cut you off because um, we need time to get to all of this. So these are five substantive issue-based questions covering a wide range of issues impacting this community. For the interest of fairness, we're going to rotate how this begins. I'm going to start on this side first. There's five questions. So each subsequent question will go next to begin so that each candidate, in theory, isn't the one going fifth or fourth where you get a chance to go first each time. So with that being said, 90 seconds, basically the length of my package is on air. I'll go over sometimes, so I admit. Um, so this is question one, and it has to do with the migrant crisis, which is obviously a headline these days, front of mind. District one has seen a particularly high number of asylum-seeking families over the course of the past year and many community-based organizations have stepped up to offer services and supplies for those in need. How do you see the city's response to asylum seekers? What goals do you think the city government should be pursuing to address this need? First question goes to you, Ursula John. Thank you. Who would have thought six months ago that for a local election, we would be talking about national immigration issues? But here we are. And I think we have a moral responsibility to grant asylum to as many people as we can whose dire circumstances at home definitely deserve our compassion and our help. The number of people living in the world in terrible circumstances far exceeds and is straining our healthcare, our education. In New York City, even before the migrant crisis began, we have people living with no or inferior food, with poor shelter or homeless, poor healthcare, um, not adequate job training opportunities. The reality is that we are in a $4 billion hole in the New York City budget. And more Americans are homeless, public schools are overcrowded. We as a country or as a city do not have infinite resources. In nine months, we have had 75,000 people go through the city. We have 150 emergency sites, eight hertz that have been opened. 50% uh, of our hotels leased. Um, and I think that this is not a crisis anymore. To call it a crisis is unfair. We need to reach out to the federal government. We cannot deal with this alone. We need to have more cities and states on board to help the city. It is unfair to expect the city to shoulder this burden. And in our own communities, I have seen in my community downtown, we have done what we can to help. Thank you. Hi. Um, I think that we need, we must not forget that these individuals, the migrants, um, fled their country from abusive conditions. I think that we need to approach this in a compassionate manner. I myself as an immigrant, I came to this country at six years old. My parents didn't speak the language. They didn't know anyone here but our family. And to top it off, 
you know, they live in um, Lower East Side, so they didn't really have much funds, right? So the government really stepped in to help them, and I think that this is the role that we can play. Now, when the migrant um, asylum seekers came to our district at 231 Grand Street, I helped not one, but two necessity drives. We donated about 20,000 articles of uh, goods for the asylum seekers. Additionally, I worked with members of OCA not to post one, but also two school supply drives for PS130 and PS124. So I think that right now it's really important for us to work with our state and federal colleagues to address this migrant crisis issue. But I also want to applaud the mayor and the governor for calling to expedite the work um, authorization process. We need to get um, these individuals work because they want to come here for work. Thank you. There is a lot that our federal government and state government has to do. There are funds that we desperately need. That doesn't mean we can't be proactive on a local level. And that's what my office has been doing. We have literally converted our conference room into a free store room. So we have families coming from all around the city just getting bare necessity at our office. But it also helps us. It helps us engage with these families to figure out what they need. Earlier last year, we had a round table with a lot of the nonprofits that are here today to figure out what services that they can provide for free for these families. And now we're seeing these programs actually take into effect. China, Chinatown Manpower is providing English classes for free for these families. Grand Street Settlement is helping some of the kids find daycare slots. We've been able not only to provide the bare clothing, the bare food, but also put them on a journey to become successful. The only reason why I'm standing in front of you is because University Settlement. They gave me childcare in the morning. They gave me after school program after school. And they provided me the tools to be successful in life. And that's what my office has been doing on the ground every single day, making sure that no one's left behind. Thank you. I immigrated here to America from China in 1990 for graduate school. So I go through the process of naturalization in order to get green card first, and then apply for citizen after five years. Do you know, I have a question for everyone here. Do you know that there are four million Chinese are trying to apply for immigration here? They are sponsored with relatives who are here, but they are waiting in line. Second question for all of you. Do you know we have two million Mexicans waiting in line trying to come over here to America. They are all sponsored with relatives, do you know? So these six million people, I am more thinking about them. I'm more thinking about them. Right now, we have such a backlog of our immigration process that they need to wait 10 and 20 years. Do we have compassion for them? Where is our compassion for them? Four million Chinese, two million Mexicans. And I have compassion for them because their relatives are my constituents. Their relatives sponsor their 
family to come here. I want to solve the problem that way, and then the migrants can come into the same path to apply for application here. Thank you. Be honest with you, I'm kind of like, you know, the first day that I came to this America, it was back in 1989, I was an illegal immigrant. But right now, I'm a citizen. And right now, I'm running for candidate, District 1. I don't feel the shame that I'm telling you the truth. I came here in 1987 with my visitor visa, that which is very sad for those non-citizen people who came here very, you know, like they had a hardship for that. But I'm very sad for them. But when I came here, I started to apply social security, started to pay taxes, started to go to work. That's where am I right now. I don't mind telling you, when I was here, 18 years old, I'm 50 years old. Don't say that I'm looking young, I'm trying to become. So my point is asylum seekers. You know, the government, Governor Hawkins, the state, the federal, the congressional supposed to be working together and try to give this isolated seekers a status to work like me when I first came here. At least I have my social security, you know, just only for deposit bank, but not working. But I forced myself to pay taxes. At the end, I got my status. So hopefully they get the same privilege. Hopefully they get the same pay. Okay, thank you. That's round one. Question one, um, clearly you see differences here on this panel, so can't argue there isn't choice. Also notice that nobody was critical of the mayor. Um, observation. Um, question two, we'll start with Susan Lee here. 87% of council district one, this district is made of tenants. This is an issue that's plaguing the city, but obviously it's come out a few times already tonight about affordability and housing. The data shows that most New Yorkers cannot afford to keep up with rising rents. If elected, how will you work with organized working class tenants in your district to win truly affordable, not-for-profit housing for the city? I think one of the first things I would look at is um, lifting the bar cap. It is really important for us to look at, to be creative and look at ways to solve the housing crisis, especially the affordable housing crisis. Now, what I mean by lifting the bar cap is it gives us guidance in terms of how we can convert these um, empty commercial space. And we've seen that during, um, after 9-11, when we converted office space, unused office space in lower Manhattan into uh, residential units where we have a vibrant live work um, environment. But also what I wanna do as your council member is to work with um, developers to develop responsibly and to make sure that the um, mandatory inclusionary housing goes from 30% to perhaps 40 or 50%. And I think that that's really important that we work to make sure that we provide more additional affordable housing. Additionally, I would work with my state colleagues to work on the AMI issue to make sure that those who are applying for affordable housing um, can and will apply and which is truly affordable. So that is how I would address the affordable housing crisis. There's two ways to address the affordable housing crisis. is building much needed, deeply affordable housing. We don't, a lot of, you hear in the news, we have a housing crisis. We actually have an affordability crisis. 
We have new buildings popping up all over our district where many of us in this room cannot afford. And what that leads to is displacement. What we've been seeing, especially in my office, we get hundreds of people a week saying that they can no longer afford their rent or their landlord is forcing them out. So we have to make sure that we pass zonings like the Chinatown Working Group Plan to protect tenants who currently live here, but also build 100% affordable housing, which we're doing right now at Grand Street Gills, where we're gonna build two 100%, where 30% of those units are gonna go to people who are homeless. So when people say you can't build affordable housing downtown, we have proven them wrong. But we have to make sure that we have to take this issue on a wider lens and rezone our community to protect tenants that actually build our neighborhood. And that's what I've been doing, and that's what I'm committed to doing. My favorite topic. I have been in NYCHA every single day. And Alfred Smith know me as Miss Helen. Miss Helen is here. So I'm calling all my NYCHA families here. I want you to know that de Blasio has misplaced $1 billion of NYCHA money, where the city council have plenty of time to find out where it went. But so far, we haven't discovered it. And I want to leave my NYCHA family to find it. This is the money that the city has allocated for NYCHA. NYCHA can use it to fix their bathroom, to paint their hallways, and to improve their living condition. NYCHA is a low-income housing, or even no-income housing. However, NYCHA people are people of dignity. We need to return the dignity to NYCHA. They cannot live with their hallways ceiling falling down. They cannot live uh, with a dirty lobby or a dangerous lobby. So we need help to find that $1 million. Uh, $1 million. And I hope you raise your hands to help me out as well when, I, when you elect me to fight for you. Second, thank you. Thank you, thank you, my friend. And secondly, I want to renovate Time. every every affordable housing by using artists. And Jenny will understand what I mean. The artists can come to renovate some of the old houses and bring them into our inventory. So my two answers, thank you. Yes, about affordable housing is a really hot topic. I agree with you, candidate Haven, but I also agree with uh, our incumbent, Christopher Mate. Because affordable housing, when I was a board member, I was a secretary. I was a board member as a chairperson of immigration. I know all these things. Affordable housing is very important in all five boroughs that you have to remember. You gotta be taking care of the PMI. You gotta be taking care of the AMI. AMI. I hope that Christopher Mate as an incumbent listening to me. Because you know, I feel like most of the elderly people they are still in the waiting list. We do not have enough apartments for all the elderly people and for the low income people. My mom do not make any money and he, she does not have any income and she's not qualified. So think about it, Christopher. It's a poor thing for me. You know, I know that I make a lot of money. I know that sometimes I, I myself in the past 10 years, Christopher, I'm not qualified. <laughs> 
So think about, you know, AMI, PMI, you know, things that for elderly people be able to afford the rent, at least $300 a month to start. For five years later, you can raise them out. But think about that. Thank you. and it's Chris's lucky evening because I also agree with him that it's really an affordable housing crisis. Um, and we can see all around us, especially in Chinatown and the Lower East Side, uh, where low-income families have been squeezed out and workers that have lived here for generations can no longer age in place, which is a shame. I think we need to have a two-pronged approach. In the short term, um, I actually think we need to follow, you said nobody mentioned the mayor, but we need to follow the mayor's uh, plans as he's doing with the migrant crisis. Uh, we need to use it for our own uh, affordability crisis and assess all underutilized buildings to see if we can have um, adaptive reuse housing. We need to advocate for better utilization of housing tax credits. And we need to use state-funded rent vouchers, but more than that, we need to make sure that landlords uh, accept them and that landlords are reimbursed by the state in a timely manner. Um, in the long term, of course, we need to reassess zoning laws to make them less restrictive. And uh, we do have movement and traction downtown in District 1. There is the new um, Five World Trade Center building coming up, and there's a, there's a huge community movement around making that affordable housing. We need to push for more of that. And um, we need to make sure that rezoning and upzoning don't only happen in low-income communities with people of color. The question three will start with the council member here. In 2021, the University Council passed Our City, Our Vote, this local law 11, which expanded municipal voting rights of legal permanent residents and those with work authorizations. This opened the door for over 800,000 New Yorkers who make their voice heard in their city. Since then, the law was struck down by a Staten Island judge. The question is this, if the courts ultimately decide that the law, that the OCOV does, not be, does become law, how would you outreach to immigrants in your district to make sure they know their rights? And conversely, if the courts decide that non-citizens don't have the right to vote, what follow-up steps would you take to ensure their voices are heard? Can you hear me? The one thing that I'm most proud about, not only about my campaign or my council office, is that whether you're a citizen, whether you're a green car holder, or whether you're undocumented, I represent you. I do outreach to you. I knock on your door. I go to your shelter. I talk to you. I figure out what your issue are. And then that's what makes my, that makes me better at my job. And so the way we'll outreach to this new community of voters is by doing just that knocking on doors, being on the street corner, and being where they're at. In regards to the court dealing, if we don't get additional movements through appealing it to the Court of Appeals or higher courts, we're just gonna have to continue to fight and introduce new legislation that sidesteps what was struck down and continue to push for this. You know, this country was made from to say no taxation without representation. Green car holders, they pay their taxes and they need to have their voice in city government. And so I'm a huge advocate of this. 
we New Yorkers are not narrow-minded people, so I read news about Chicago as well. Chicago talk about their housing are lost to the border courses because the city are centuries ago. So they present a very poignant question. Who do you care for most when you have a shortage? If we have plenty, we don't have that question. But if we have a limited resources, who do you care for first? I say we care for our senior first. We care for New Yorkers first, who has been living here for a long time, who has parents who have broken knees and cannot climb the flights. I say we take care of them first. When 231 Grand Street became a migrant center, you broke my heart, Martin, because we did not put in the same passion to advocate for the seniors who cannot climb the flight. And other people also broke my heart too. When they advocate so much for the resources and supplies, but they never do the same for our seniors in Chinatown or in the bigger areas of our district. We need to take care of our people first when we have a conflict. So that's my commitment to you. I will take care of you first, and then I will take care of the four million and two million Fine. of your relative first. Thank you. Um, I would say that every one of you sitting down here in this room have their own rights to vote. So going back to the non-citizens people, they don't have the rights to vote. I do understand it because the bill has already passed saying that people that who are already in citizens' positions, they have the rights to vote. People that do not have citizens, that are non-immigrants, they have the rights to walk into Christopher Monte's office, you know, to give some complaints, and he's over there serving you for this District 1 in the past few years, right? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All of you have your rights to go to his office and complain 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and so on. But, you know, you have your voice up, you got to do his job on the table. Thank you. <laughs> I came to um, this country to graduate school and this is an issue that's dear to my heart because it uh, annoyed me, upset me and frustrated me endlessly that for years, 15 years, um, I paid taxes at New York City rates without having a voice or a vote. Other countries have implemented this very successfully for local elections and there is no reason we should not be able to do it. Um, and I hope it passes. But I also realize that if it does, immigrant communities tend to have a tendency to put their head down and work. They are reluctant to, to, to take, which maybe this table doesn't show actually, um, but they're often reluctant to take a, a political role or speak up about things. So obviously outreach would be, would be needed. And in the same vein, if this is not passed, we can still do outreach to immigrant communities to show them and teach them other ways that they can get involved at the local level, such as joining community boards, for which you do not need to be a citizen. Um, they, they can have a public voice 
even though it's not as significant as a whole. Thank you for this question. Um, Non-citizen voting is actually something that um, I'm passionate about. My mom is a US citizen, but my dad isn't. My dad is a green card holder. He has been here for almost 40 years, deeply ingrained in the community, does the work for the community, and is part of the community. However, he is denied the right to vote, to select who represents him in elected office. So I think that we really need to look at this legislation and perhaps um, make, make changes to it so that it can get passed. A talk in terms of, you know, if it's struck down and um, those without citizenship cannot vote, I will do outreach. You know, we talked about, Ursula just talked about community boards. Not long ago, New York City School Board parents were elected to represent the interests of their children. Parents didn't have to be US citizens. And I think that that is something that's wonderful that we can do because parents know the needs of their children. And I think that green card holders know the needs of their community. Therefore, I think it's really important that we pass this legislation. Thank you. Um, before I move on to the next question, I, I wasn't asked to fact check, but I am a journalist by trade, so I can't help it. Um, one of the comments from the candidates up here is want to clarify, um, maybe it's a misunderstanding of the question, but to be clear, legal permanent residents and people with work authorizations are not necessarily all undocumented immigrants, and there are seniors who live here who may also be been here for 40 years who have work authorizations and are legal permanent residents. So I don't know if that was confusing up here, but let's not blur those two. These are two separate things. With that being said, let's move on to the next question, question four. We begin with Helen on this one. The question is about the mayor's proposed budget for this year, which we know if you've listened to the news is in dire straits. It includes significant budget cuts for various city agencies. In his words, actually, every agency is in jeopardy here, um, including libraries, social services, resources for the homeless, education. I mean, literally everything, to quote the mayor, is on the chopping block. So, with that being said, amid these steep cuts for essential services, the NYPD's budget, though, remains the same, and it's set to continue its overspending on overtime pay and settling police misconduct cases. As of April, the NYPD's expenditure of overtime used approximately 715 million, surpassing the allocated budget of 453 million, that's by nearly 60%. So at the same time, uh, this community does not feel safe, We've talked about that ad nauseum. How do you intend to use these budget increases and decreases to center our community's needs? What specific programs would you reallocate funding toward to make our community members feel safer? Helen, this goes to you first. NYPD are short of their staff because we have cut 2,000 NYPD members. And these officers, are working overtime because there's no people that wants to work in New York City's NYPD. We lack of manpower. So we need to rethink about this problem. Why do we have so much crime? Because we lack of manpower. And why do you have such a big budget? Because you make the very few people work overtime. And overtime pay is much higher. 
So this is a problem that can be easily solved if we restaff the 2,000 missing NYPD staffs. So they can solve problems on both ways. On the one hand, you have more staffs helping to make our city safe. And on the other hand, you will have less expenses. In terms of other expenses, I already explained to you. I'm calling all the people here and on live stream and all my NYCHA families come to look for the one billion with me. So that will cut our budget. And we have sponsored a lot of useless programs in our education system. And they need to be repurposed, which we can do. Thank you. Um, yes, talking about the budget cut, I have a lot to talk about. Budget cut is overall of all the city agencies. Should it be cut? Yes. Why not? I don't know. But to tell the truth, it's I'm working as a special education teacher, I don't get extra pay. So what should I do? Because of the budget cut. When I asked the principal today, are you going to be hiring me for next year? I got to think about the budget cut. So what should I do? I don't know. But coming back to every agency, yes, budget cut for something else. Because NYPD, we, we need this city to be safe. We need the city to run safe. So what we need, NYPD, do we need law enforcement from the parks to help us? Do we need any sanitation law enforcement? I mean law enforcement? No, we don't need the, the sanitation law enforcement to keep us safe. You know, to keep the garbage clean, yes. But to going back to the parks department, do we need a parks department law enforcement to keep us safe? No. What do we need? NYPD. The budget goes straight. $750 million surplus, I would agree, because my, our teacher, UFT, cuts down to give it to them as well. But you know, think about it. If we don't walk the straight, if we don't walk the street safe, who's gonna save us? The NYPD, recently I read the article yesterday, they got bumped into by the, oh, thank you. So we are at a really interesting juncture in um, the, the city's budget where the mayor's office is projecting a $4 billion hole in the budget and city council is saying that over the next two years they can find $1.8 billion in extra revenue. Um, I, can't, I can't speak to that because I don't have the, the intricate details of either, perhaps Chris can, but um, it is clear that to balance the budget, some cuts need to be made. And from my experience and knowledge of the Department of Education at least, which is the largest share of the city's budget, I know that every department can have um, cuts made in the form of efficiencies without taking away from services that are delivered to people. So I believe that looking at efficiencies within each department would benefit us more than cutting uh, budgets, I mean, like the whole library thing. That's ridiculous. Uh, but I also believe that the NYPD must be fully funded because people do feel unsafe. There is a, uh, a slight rise in petty crime, but there's also, as, as those numbers have started balancing out, there's also still the perception of, of um, not feeling safe, which is equally important. And I do believe that the NYPD 
has to not do the jobs that are meant to be done by social services and mental health workers. The NYPD must be supported by social services. I don't believe that we need to do an across-the-board 3% budget cut on all agencies. I think what we need to do is examine each agency and look at it from a perspective of efficiency. Right now, I, you know, I honestly think um, when we look at the NYPD budget and overtime, it's because we don't have enough police officers. Many of them um, were lost to attrition, retirement. We have a problem recruiting. I think that we need to build up the morale of the police officers and recruit more um, officers to the police force. What I think is really important is when you take that in the, when you take that framework and think about being efficient and not driving up the overtime, that will that will decrease the um, the NYPD's budget. Now, when we talk about cuts to social services, I honestly think that we do not need to cut social services. I use the libraries. My family uses the libraries. Libraries are important. Um, there have been cuts to meals on wheels. And that's a shame because seniors, homebound seniors, rely on these meals. That might be their only meal for the day. So I do not believe that we need to do across the board 3% budget cut. We need to look at other agencies that are not efficient. Thank you. So in the past 30 years, the city council forecast of the budget has been accurate 90% of the time. That means almost every single time the mayor's forecast of what the budget was gonna be is wrong. And so when the city council says that the mayor doesn't need to cut libraries, doesn't need to cut uh, HRA staffing, doesn't need to cut our hospitals, doesn't need to cut our education, it's because historically we have been right. What does this mean? By cutting funds from HRA, that means a senior that comes into my office can't get her social security check on time. Cutting libraries, you can't take your kid to the library on a Sunday for his reading class, or for him to have Wi-Fi, or for someone just to have a place to sit and have air conditioning. What does it mean to cut budgets of our schools? Right now, I have principals contacting me and telling me, I don't know how many people I can hire for the next year because I don't know what the mayor is gonna to do to us. And that's why the city council and myself have been out there every single day rallying with our libraries, rallying with our nurses, rallying with our principals to make sure that these cuts don't happen. Because what we need to do is invest in these communities. When you think about hospitals, libraries, or social security, those are working class people. Those are black, brown communities that are being cut and resources are taken away of. And so I think what we need is care, not cuts. Invest in these communities so it saves us a lot more money in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so the final question, we're gonna start at the end here. The question is, how do we preserve Chinatown's distinct sense of community amidst intensifying gentrification and disproportionate, disproportionate impacts of disasters on the community and small businesses? And I'm gonna throw a twist curveball on this one because this is such a pressing issue in the district, the proposed jail in Chinatown, I would imagine has to play somewhat into this question and answer. So I'd love for you to answer it that way as being at the end of the table, please.
Can you hear me? Yes, I do. All right. <laughs> Going back to the impacts of disaster on our community and our small businesses, be honest. In this Chinatown, there are many small businesses have been cut down. You know, I'm kind of like very sad because my mom usually goes to one of those groceries and has been closed down, and it's just because of the rent is too much. They they raised the rent, and it's kind of very sad to me. So hopefully that you know the government be able, like the small businesses administration, be able to help out the small businesses owners that you know gave them a discount, give them a property taxes discounts, anything be able to keep our community and the businesses in one. So hopefully that Christopher Mate be able to talk straight with the mayor and say that come on, small businesses, small businesses. That be able to fund it or maybe rebates to all small businesses in a year. Thank you. Thank you. Um, for generations, Chinatown in New York has been a special place, not just for residents but for visitors too. And when I came here as a young graduate school um, student, I remember being very excited about my first trip down here, and. Um, it, it's still a special place. I come to my groceries, we walk through, my kids have some classes here. And over the years, we've seen long-term generational residents being squeezed out. So this goes back to addressing issues of affordable housing. Um, and uh, we must provide support to these multi-generational small business owners who have been in this area for literally generations um, that cannot afford their rents anymore or during COVID with uh, petty crime and racism and the fact that visitors were staying away from Chinatown were forced to close, close their doors. So affordable housing is key. But um, regarding the jail, borough-based jail is what we call it. But somehow nobody else in the borough of Manhattan seems to be concerned about it except for very local residents. And I actually think that, you know, perhaps the, the, this, our city council member could have done more to make this a, a Manhattan-wide issue. Because if you were to suddenly say, you know, move this to the Upper East Side, I'm sure we would all be hearing about it in the news. But the Chinatown jail, you talk to most people who live uptown, they've never heard of it. So I think we need to have some public awareness around this issue so we can make sure the community information. Thank you for that question. And you know, that question really touches on um, the Chinatown jail. I was in the front line protesting the jail against Chinatown. I was the first to be arrested. When the machinery, when the machinery came in, I felt that that was the first coming. It was the death of Chinatown. We talk about gentrification, and I'm not blind to that. I see that in my community. I see how the composition of Chinatown in our district has changed. And I also, and this is, this is you know, evident in the fact that in Brooklyn, we have a new, new Asian majority district. It's because those that used to live in Chinatown can no longer live in Manhattan. They moved to the outer boroughs. Now we talk about you know, gentrification and then you throw in all the other expenses that people cannot afford. Uh, food prices are going up. 
And so we look at that and we look at um, affordable housing issue. We really need to invest in our community, invest in our small businesses, because they support the local economies. They support those that live in Chinatown, that work here. So when we talk about gentrification, it's not just about people living here, but the small businesses that are changing in our communities. Um, they provide the ethnic, um, culturally appropriate food, produce, that our seniors rely on. And so it's important for us to look at nonprofits and community organizations to provide services to the community in need. I believe the jail is just one example of how the city has chosen violence against this community, not only in Chinatown, but in the Lower East Side. When we look at zoning throughout our district, which neighborhoods aren't protected? Chinatown, Lower East Side. When the city wants to burden a community, whether it's with a jail or a public facility, they choose Chinatown, Lower East Side. This is what we've been dealing with for decades. And this has affected gentrification because we are not allowed to protect our mom and pop shop, protect residents who've been living here for decades, and also protect workers to make sure that they're safe and they can continue to come to their job every single day. And so I think the Chinatown jail is just another example of this. But we've been fighting. I've been fighting against this jail for the past four years. I helped found Neighbors United below Canal Street. And I got to correct what one of my opponents said, we did make it a citywide issue. People from all over New York and all around the country know about the fight against the mega jail, which would be the world's tallest jail in the world. It's because we've been able to organize with people in this room, with nonprofits, with stakeholders, with every single person saying that this would destroy Chinatown. And so when someone says we haven't been doing the work, we have. Because if you look at Brooklyn, if you look at Queens, if you look at the Bronx, they're all in motion of demolition and construction while we're still fighting and staying alive here in Chinatown. Hello,唐人家的鼓楼乡亲们,你们好,我是姚海伦,我今天参选市议员,还有一个是讲国语和粤语的华人竞选人,希望你投我一票,还是十一月份,大家好,我是邱海伦,我是唯一会讲国语和
So I want to emphasize that we need our our community's voice, and I will be your representation. Thank you. Okay, so I again need to fact check something here. So to be clear, the Amazon proposal versus the mega jail. Although the mega jail is not the federal law, it's federal law to shut down Rikers. And I will come back to the Rikers question, but let's sort of be clear on what the council's ability is on the two different projects. Uh, that being said, um, let's have um, everyone who has a question uh, to submit those on the index cards. The volunteers going around, don't get them in, not getting it up here. This is now the fun part of the forum. Uh, this is a round robin round, and this is how it's going to work. Uh, each candidate has a chance to ask one candidate of their choice a question. That candidate receiving that question now has 90 seconds to respond to it. So one candidate can ask one other candidate one question, and you have 90 seconds to respond. We'll rotate it back down to this end, so that Ursula uh, kicks us off, and we'll go down the line. So Ursula, you get the first question. Tell us who the question is for and what the question is. I'm going to ask Susan a question. Um, you are an advocate for strange and specialized schools, as am I. Um, the teachers' union is not. But the teachers' union, as we all know, is capable of making and breaking many an election. How would you reconcile these two if you were to be elected? So I am a product of University Public School. I actually attended um, what was called a SP program, which is a special progress program back in the 90s. So if any of you know that program, um, that is similar to Terrence Gifted and Talented program. And it was through that program, um, a lot of my, um, I went to focus that. So it was through that program, a lot of my fellow students came to that program. And during that time, we had equal number of uh, black, Latino, white, and Asian um, so I think that that program is very successful in diversity. Um, now, I applaud the mayor for increasing the, gifted, the seats for gifted and talented program and for also creating um, an entryway for those in the third grade. So I think that, you know, when we look at those programs, um, gifted and talented program is a pipeline to those who want to go to specialized high school, which is also a ticket like it was a ticket for me, for many of us, out of poverty. It was after Brooklyn sat that I went to Barner College. I almost got a, I almost, it was almost a full ride to Barner College. And then I was able to use the money that I didn't have to spend at Barner College to pursue my graduate degree at NYU. So these programs are important for immigrant families and low-income families because that is the pathway to success for them. Okay, so I have a question for Ursula. And this is a fun question, because um, what is your favorite book, and what inspired you from that book? We are done, so. But I'm gonna say a book that I haven't ever even read in completion, and it's War and Peace, because it's impossible to get through. But it keeps teaching me that you need to go back and challenge yourself and try and try again. Because if, 
I don't know, thousands, millions, I don't know how many of them have read it, but hundreds of people say it's an excellent book. They must have something going. So I just try and keep an open mind, and I think that book has been a lesson for me in just going back and trying to do the work. My question is for Susan Lee. Um, last year around November, during the general election, you tweeted disdain for Governor Kathy Hochul and support uh, for the Republican Lee Zeldin. Can you explain why you support Lee Zeldin? Um, I did not support Lee Zeldin. <laughs> um, so um, during the Democratic primary, I not support Governor Kathy Hochul. Um, I, you know, I supported Tom Swazi, who is a moderate Democrat like myself, um, a common sense Democrat. And so I don't know where um, you saw my support for it. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. So except to say that I didn't. Um, and if you check my voting record, I don't know. You know, I know you cannot, but I did not vote for Lee Zeldin either. So, um, yeah. Uh, my question is for Martin. <laughs> so, you know, we have uh, safety issues in our district and in New York in general and you supported defending the police before. And I want to ask you, do you recognize that we are 2,000 NYPD headcount less than two years ago? And how would you address that? Would you restaff the NYPD? I think in our district, we have great precincts that we work with every single day. My office goes to the community council meetings to know what's happening, what they're seeing, and we're coordinating on what we can do on the city council side to partner with our local precinct to address some of our safety concerns. One example, the Chinatown bid decided to put up more security cameras because they felt like they needed to know what was happening more in our community. We help fund that work and work with our city precinct to figure out where to place them and put them. The same thing for our local parks. Some of our parks did not have lighting. And so the fifth precinct told us which ones they needed support and funding for, and we did. And so it's not whether you support or don't support, it's how you work with them on the day-to-day -to, -day to make sure our community remains safe. And that's what we've been able to do. And I think if you look at the streets in Chinatown from two years ago, it was almost completely dead. And now you see tourists from all around the world shopping at our mom and pop shops eating at our restaurants, and enjoying our iconic and beloved neighborhood. All right, any some very interesting questions for Marte? You ready? Yes, there are many of these abandoned buildings in District 1. What is the first target that you would do when you get elected? So we do have a lot of vacant apartments. If you look at one Manhattan Square, the XTEL building, every single night, you see that almost 70% of the lights are off. That means no one's living there. 
while if you walk along the streets, you see people who desperately need housing. So the issue is that we're not building affordable housing. And so I believe in conversion, moving a lot of the commercial spaces into true, deeply affordable housing, similar to what we did in the financial district after 9-11. But we also have to make sure that these landlords are not getting away with you know, taking their apartments off the market or allowing these billionaires from all around the world to just use these apartments as a bank account. And so what we need to do is to make sure that we do away with pied-à-terre, which allows people to just randomly buy second apartments as investments and make sure that we house the New Yorkers that need it. Thank you. Yeah, I told you this was a fun part, and it even more fun. Uh, this is the lightning round, which I take special pleasure in because way back in the day, like 20 years ago, when I produced the political pro program at New York One, we invented this, um, and we were strict about this. The campaign finance board loved it, and now it's caught on, so it's great. The lightning round, the way this works, is each candidate gets to respond to the same question, yes or no. This says 10 seconds, forget the 10 seconds. I don't want your explanations, I want yes or no, I'm going to hold you to it. You start talking, I'm going to cut you off. Yes or no. But I've got two questions from the audience. I have three of my own. I'd love to spice this up a bit. Um, we'll, let's start here and then pass it down that way. We'll just kind of rotate. Um, but I want to get a little bit of a clarity and temperature check on kind of a couple of the issues that are pressing with the community that we sort of glazed over. Uh, this one's on yes or no. I'm going to ask you a grade. A minus, A plus to F. On the migrant crisis, grade the mayor. C. 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 I would say C. That wasn't that fun. All right, keep it, keep it down there. We'll go the other way this time, okay? Um, let's do this. Um, let's go back to the jail because this is a big deal, right? Yes or no? Yes. Why not? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ask the question yet. I didn't ask the question yet. So I have, I have two questions on this, yes or no, okay? The first question is this. Should we shut down Rikers, yes or no? No. No. Yes. No. No. Okay, keep it this way. One more question on the jail. I think most of you are clear on this, although I'm a little bit unclear on a few of you, so this might be somewhat redundant. Just. General yes or no, the proposed jail in Chinatown, because I don't think I heard clearly from everyone. Yes or no, would that be good for, now let me rephrase that, would that, would that be bad for Chinatown? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, bad. I would say no, give it a try. <laughs> That's why I asked, right? I don't think I got clarity. I think we have clarity now. Um, hey, look, the answer is the answer, right? Okay, so we have two audience lightning round questions here. Um, interesting ones, okay? Start there, come down. Um, do you think 16 and 17 year old adult citizens, well I guess they're not adults for 16 and 17, should have the right to vote? Yes or no? I would say yes. No. Yes. Yeah. No. I have a 16 year old, I know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and here's the last one, the light, there's, there's a second part of lightning round, this is part one, okay? Uh, the second question from the audience on lightning round, yes or no? Do you support landlords not being allowed to run, 
criminal background checks on tenants. So to be clear, the question is, do you support landlords not being allowed to run criminal checks? Yes, no. No. Yes. Thank no. Can you repeat that question again? Do you support landlords not being allowed to run criminal background checks on tenants? That's the current status, in other words. Do you support that? What, what we are status quo right now, correct? Um, I would rather the landlord to run the background. That's a yes. So that's a yes. That's a yes, okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah, can you clarify your answer again? So you you would support you would not support landlords to run criminal checks. Criminal I would support the landlord ran to the allow them to check. run it. Okay. Okay. Correct. Do you support? Not this is the way this is written. I don't like this question. Do you support landlords not being allowed to run criminal checks? No. So in other words, if you say no, you're saying they should run them right. Right. Okay. We're clear on that, right? Right, but we're asking them how they feel about that, right, right. That, that's, I get your point, sir, but we're trying to find out if they agree or not with the current, right, state law. Um, like, do you have more? Okay, so we have lightning round number two. This gets a little more fun, I think. A little bit of time. Okay. I didn't write these. Where's the microphone over there? Okay. What's your favorite street in the district? What? What's your favorite street in this district? Mud Street. Ludlow. East Broadway. Rector Place. Okay, see we have some differences up here, it's good. Uh, this one's fun. Who would you rank as number two for this election? Susan Lee. Crystal Jones. <laughs> I'll keep it blank. <laughs> Christopher Mahe is the second. I would say Chris Stewart is the second. <laughs> okay. Um, how, how do you commute to work? That's assuming we still commute to work, of course. How do you commute to work? I walk to my district office and city bike to city hall. Subway. By bus. I walk. Subway and currently walking for campaigning. Okay, I'm gonna add one in here, okay? Another one of these sort of current hot topics. Do you support congestion pricing, yes or no? No. No. Local exceptions. No. That's, not <laughs> <laughs> that's not a yes or no. Your opponents have told me, you know, that's got, you gotta pick one. Not the current court. That's a no, that's a no, okay. No. I would say no. Okay, I think we see some differences. We're gonna go to some audience submitted questions now, okay? You have one minute per candidate to answer these questions, okay? We're just gonna go in the order in which we see them. 
I'm going to try to read this. Okay, another concern raised is the need for another M14A bus for during Monday through Friday rush hours. Many have found that many times buses are full, and on occasion they've had to wait for another bus. Standing room only is also very taxing on the seniors, the disabled. What would you do about this? Or what can be done? One minute. Let's start since we're down there already with the microphone coming this way. One minute each. All right. I would say M14A should be running in uh, peak hours, starting from seven o'clock. People usually those who work at six should be starting at six, maybe all the way down to maybe nine o'clock, and then from nine o'clock runs like you know every ten minutes. The, those rush hours in between from six to nine should be running like every five, three to five minutes. That can be discussed with the commissioner of the transportation, and I would say that um, right after when the school dismissal, all right, when the school dismissal should be running back again for peak hours from like you know three minutes to five minutes buses. I think it will be fair. Uh, I like the little red and white buses running in downtown, but currently the the bus service uh, does not come to Chinatown or. Uh, south of Houston and Grand Street, and I want to extend that bus. And I already have someone that loved the idea uh, to the entire district. And that will be our uh, District 1 buses. Especially, I want to set up a point of uh, stops for senior centers and let the seniors are uh, able to take the free bus to go to a train station. And then that will alleviate our congestion and also will help the uh, working class who are taking the bus and subways to have more frequent services. So I hope you like this idea and vote for me on November 7th. I remember three and a half years ago, they actually wanted to take one of our local bus stops on the 14, uh, for M14 bus line. And we fought as a community. I see Lee Berman in the back, he was one of the leaders. Daisy Pye is also district leader. We organized this whole neighborhood and got BOT to keep that local bus station. And we can do that if we need more buses. I will get my other elected officials or state elected officials to write a letter to make sure that the DOT studies this. And if it seems like we do need additional buses, it's something that we should definitely demand for. Thank you. So I walk a lot, and that's because the M14 bus takes forever to arrive. So I do agree that we need more M14A bus services, but I also would propose working with DOT to look at um, a traffic study to perhaps have designated um, bus lanes for the buses to go. Because I know that um, on the M15, there is a designated bus lane that goes up First Avenue and comes down Second Avenue, and I think that that is something that we can we can look into if it's possible. And I think that we need to look at traffic patterns that are going um, to Williamsburg Bridge. That is causing a lot of the congestion um, in, in the Grand Street Corridor. So I think that those are some of the ways that we can look at it from a holistic approach, not just um, adding more um, bus services, which would help, but if there's no room for the buses to go, we would just end up sitting on an idle bus and it would just be faster to walk. Um, just refreshingly to stick to the question, 
I do think that if um, a bus is crowded at rush hour, as most buses tend to be, and um, it is true that for seniors and for mothers with strollers and young children and for people with wheelchairs, it is almost impossible to get on at certain hours. Um, so I would definitely support adding routes as needed during rush hour. Let's keep it brief. Um, here's a good question, um, and kind of pertinent actually, given we're in the post-COVID world, we're trying to reimagine how we use public spaces. We have, the question is, we have limited public open space in our community. How can we maintain or expand open spaces for all, and then keep them safe and accessible? 60 seconds each. Green spaces in, in uh, New York City seem to be directly related to income levels. So we frequently see low-income communities and communities of color have less access to green spaces. Um, I think ideally we, we should all be within 10 minutes walking to a green space. We also know environmentally this is, this is better to reduce hotspots in the city. It's good for our mental health, not just physical health. Um, so I'm a big supporter of the Parks Department. And um, as we advocate for new buildings, which we need an affordable housing in our neighborhood, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are certain spots that are beloved by neighbors for being little green oases in this concrete jungle of ours. So green spaces is vital to the community. And as a founder of FDR Park Alliance, we were able to um, receive a $3.5 million grant from Governor Hochul's for the Downtown Revitalization Initiative for Therapy Roadblock Park. And that green space is necessary for, for us living in um, tight quarters because that is an extension of our home. It is where we meet our friends, we socialize. Just last week, SDR Park Alliance hosted a cleanup and we had over 50 people attend. We cleaned up the park and we also planted um, planted plants. And what was really interesting about that initiative, um, we do it monthly, is that children who are not exposed to gardening had the opportunity to plant flowers in the flower bed. And so that gave, one of the parents came up to me and said, you know what? Kids in the suburbs will not appreciate this. I think as the only candidate here that fought to save East River Park, it really crushed the opportunity that many of our community has to have access to green space, open space, right next to the waterfront. And so I made it in my commitment that my first terms, we're gonna open new parks. And today we opened up the third park in just one year and a half. Whether it's near the pier, where you can play soccer and tennis, or in Soho where there's an open space where people can relax and today right in Brooklyn Bridge Park where not only skateboarders could go but where seniors can do Tai Chi. My goal is to continue to open space for our neighborhood because we have seen time and time again it being taken away from our neighborhoods. I applaud you Marte, for doing a good job and when I'm elected you will be my park Caesar. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, I, I fought for a community garden that 
in a very uh, tight neighborhood three years ago. Uh, and it was going to convert into a parking lot. And we made videos and convinced the uh, community board to vote completely from what they originally planned. And in single one meeting, we were able to continue the garden. And in the meantime, I got about $500 of supplies for them. So uh, if we can uh, use our hearts to emphasize how important uh, green spaces are for our quality of lives, I think we have many, many chances to build small little gardens, even rooftop gardens, to improve our entire district. Thank you. Um, yes, I agree on. I agree with candidate Helen. I agree on the incumbent uh, candidate Christopher because we should think about green spaces. Green spaces is very important because you know why? How do we breathe? We go back to science, like those fifth graders, sixth graders, those high schools kids. We got oxygen from greens, from the leaves, right? It's pretty logical. We don't get oxygen from pollutions. We have too much pollutions over here. So you know. Build more gardens right on the top of the roof, no matter if they are residents' roof or buildings' roof. You know, Martha, think about it. You know, have a discussions with the parks department that you know build more greens up in the roof so that we can get fresh air. We we do not get enough fresh air in the city in District One because we have too much pollution up here. So hopefully, you think about it. Green spaces is number one in District One. Interesting point. It's also something Bloomberg did do during his time, having more green space on rooftops. Um, I'm going to add a question on my own here, because I think it's sort of on topic, right? Um, this is an issue, I think, that has sort of gotten lost and forgotten in the district. I'm going to go to Park Row. Long before COVID, September 11th happened, Park Row was shut down, cutting off a vital lifeline in Chinatown. Many years later, there was a proposal from the community to reimagine Park Row, reopen it into a green open space. There is resistance from the NYPD for security reasons on this issue. That's their on-the-record rationale. So the question is, uh, do you believe Park Row should be reopened? If yes, how would you compel and convince the NYPD to go that route? If no, tell us why. We can keep it down there. Come on down. 60 seconds. Okay, Park Row should be open. Why? It's because that we community don't know where to go. Most of the people that live in this building apartments, they have no way to go. So Park Row should be open, yes, but we need more security from the NYPD, Parks Law, and Parks Law Enforcement. Thank you. Right now, it's more dangerous on the F train or D train than walking on Park Row. So there's no more reason that we should shut it down. So NYPD has statistics, and the statistics should speak for themselves, that we should open Park Row. And I think we can talk to different departments and understand that this is a mutual beneficial decision to open the park road. And we will have more parking spaces and we will allow more businesses into the Provish uh, Chinatown area and the Lower East Side. So that opening is very important to attract traffic and foot traffic that we particularly need in this time of day. Thank you. I think it was in March. So I think that um, that is taking traffic out of Chinatown, business out of Chinatown. It's not really bringing 
um, businesses into Chinatown. So I think that we need to um, look at that. But also I think that um, Park Row Alliance has their positionalization of Park Row, and I think that that is a really good initiative and we need to look at that. I do agree that we do need community engagement. One of the things that we can be creative is perhaps moving one PP to another area so that would alleviate um, the restriction from, um, from the approving it. On 9-11, I lived one block away from the Twin Towers. I was evacuated from my apartment for about six months. And when I went back in there, Lower Manhattan was a ghost town. Um, and I have seen parts of it come back with amazing vibrancy, mixed use, schools, good quality public schools, um, great residential buildings, small businesses. I have seen all this flourishing. So I don't understand why we have not replicated it earlier um, for Park Row. It's been a shame that that's been um, unutilized and underutilized space for so long. I welcome community engagement. I welcome Chris's initiative. I And you know what? I wish him luck because it's good for all of us. Okay. Um, this next question from the audience, I thought I know a lot about District 1, but I will fully admit I don't know exactly what this reference is to, hopefully you all do. The question is, is Dimes Square, D-I-M-E-S? Okay, we're laughing over here, it must be a great question. Uh, the question is, is Dimes Square a positive development in this district or negative? Please explain. You mean I have no idea. Who asked this question? Is there, are you in this audience? Does anyone know what Dime Square is? What is Dime Square? That's the corner of Essex and Canal Division. That's the area. Why is it called Dime Square? I'm not really sure what that is. Oh. Okay. Fully admit I am lost on this one, so good luck with that. <laughs> is Dimes Dimes Square a positive development in this district or negative? Please explain. You know, I have no idea, but if there's a restaurant and it's newly developed, I mean, maybe it's good unless it's overly gentrified. I can't really answer that question, so I don't want to make something up. Excuse me. I, 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 didn't, answer, I didn't ask the question, but I think I can just explain yeah, so, candidates can, so candidates can answer it. It's a little triangle two blocks away that, that, that is now effectively closed off to all traffic so during certain times of day, especially the weekend, in order to enable the new, these new, new restaurants, which have kind of clustered on the way, to operate. So it's an open street concept, basically, where yes. the street's closer to vehicular traffic and it's outdoor dining, outdoor dining concept? Yes, and, and I imagine that the point of the question was that do you love eating outside or do you love traffic? Or do you like the kinds of people who like to eat and drink at those kinds of restaurants as opposed uh, to people who used to walk back So for clarity's sake, are we talking well, like Brooklyn hipsters come here? Like what's what's the population that we're okay I, I, I have no idea. So Okay, hipsters. Okay. Okay, then we have an idea now what the issue is. Okay. I'm not a supporter of the sheds, so if it's that concept, then I don't support it. But I think he don't know, so I'm just going to pass the mic. 
So I do know about Zion Square. Um, the restaurant is named Dine, and there's a super uh, a grocery store. But I also worked at APCDF, which is at um, the corner of Division and Allen Street. So back when I was working there, Dime Square didn't exist. Dime Square is a new term. And I don't believe it is something positive for the community, because it's like Ursula was alluding to, it's the gentrification. Seniors in the neighborhood cannot afford a $4 cup of coffee, a $4 croissant. Um, so I don't believe that is uh, something that's beneficial to our community. And, um, you know, it, it closes off to vehicular traffic at a certain time. And so I don't think it's a positive development. I don't believe in the idea of Dime Square. Um, and also the kind of the phrasing of the question because it makes us pit neighbors against each other. It makes us pit people who've been living here for 30 years with people who just moved here. And I think that's what real estate developers and the real estate industry wants us to do, to continue displacement of our small businesses like Minx Cafe or seniors who landlords are illegally or legally evicting them out. But what we've been able to do, especially within the Chinatown Working Group, is bring these people together and really talk about what are the core issues, like zoning, that can drastically protect our neighborhood. And I think that should be the conversation. What can we do together, whether you live here for decades or a third generation or just moved in yesterday, how we continue to make this an immigrant working class community. I, for one, love this idea of closing our streets for a short period of time in a week. And I want many, many of the, these very nice little dime squares in my district. Because my district, in the whole wide world, is the symbol of New York. And my district is, in the whole wide world, represents the beauty, the resilience, the original of New York. So I want the historic uh, aspect of my district to be spread to the world. And that will elevate my district with pride, with economic influence, and we love it. So I want the young artists to come to my district, and I want to shut down the street for a small period of time. Maybe they can be rotated, one on Wednesday, one on Friday. But consider this as a small festival time for a few hours on a Friday night that the street is closed and you can walk there with your loved ones, with your guests. How beautiful. I want it. Um, I really want you to repeat the questions because I did not want to answer the wrong answer. Basically, do you like Times Square or not? Oh, that's simple. <laughs> Yes, I do like transferring District 1 for one reason, because most of the small businesses back in COVID-19, they are not making money in the business. So if you open up, think about it, not they open up a little Times Square in somewhere, I couldn't say Chinatown, but in District 1, that will, for those small businesses, will make more income. And that, that would consider that. Consider that tonight. Think about it, not they. Okay, I'm going to throw another curveball on here because I think we're sort of on the topic, and we're still kind of brought this up, on the outdoor dining sheds. Recognizing that in Chinatown, 
which is a huge swath of this district, it, the restaurant business is one of three pillars that keeps this vibrant economy going. And we all know what the pandemic did. We all know what outdoor dining sheds did for us in that business, in that industry during that time. But the question is, is it time for these outdoor dining sheds to go, yes or no? But also, let's sort of refresh people's memories. There's a recent deal that's been struck between the council and mayor's office, right? Where this would apply for like the four months of the warm season, and then in theory, a restaurant would have to break this down and build it back up. The compromise was there's gonna be a more streamlined process to allow outdoor dining cafes on the sidewalks. No structures, right. So keeping in mind the current agreement or the current deal being struck uh, in the backdrop, sort of a broader question, outdoor dining sheds, is it time for them to go or should they stay in perpetuity? What are your thoughts on this? Let's go down the line. Stefan, I'm gonna take it from our center for a break. Um, so I do not support outdoor dining sheds. I do not think that they fit with um, the city. Um, I've heard stories from small businesses that when they take down the shed, there are rats running out of them. Um, it, it, it prevents the Department of Sanitation from street, uh, snow removal, garbage pickup, our streets are dirtier, so I don't support it. Um, I think that you know the concept of um, sidewalk cafe that we had in the past where you need to get permits, you need to get approval from the community board. I think those are the policies that is really effective and it gives the community a say in if they want a sidewalk cafe or not. So I think it's, um, I do not support outdoor dining shed. I don't support the sheds, and I've been one of the leading advocates to make sure that we can deal with the sanitation issue that arises from having these physical structures. And so one of the main problems with this compromise deal that was announced last week is that the outdoor dining establishments will be able to go until midnight. If you live anywhere near one of these restaurants that do have outdoor sheds, or even in our district where we have Hell Square, which has the highest liquor license uh, established per square foot in the country. You know that people can't sleep. People can't get up in the morning. And when they wake up, they see a lot of things in their community that they don't want. And so because of this late hour, and because every person that gets a permit won't be able, can have it for four years, I think that's way too much, especially for the bad actors. I was recommending every two years or every year, they have to reapply so that the community can have a voice whether they want this establishment to have the privilege of having public space. I'm thinking about the beautiful Little Italy uh, on Mulberry Street and the beautiful Grand Street diners and small uh, cafes. I'm thinking about those when I answer this question. And when I think about it, I love walking on those streets. So if it's a matter of whether it's clean or not, let's solve it by what the matter is, instead of throw the entire concept away. And I think we need more engagement. And I want to cut red tape for small businesses. If you need to go through seven hours of community board uh, approval, back and forth, back and forth. Who is making money here? The government agencies. And the business is not making money, and the community is suffering by spending a lot of time and energy. 
So I want to cut all these red tape and allow small businesses to have this opportunity to outreach. But we will solve the problems and allow a little bit outdoor on the platform. Thank you. All right, the outdoor shade. I agree and I don't agree both. Why? Because the outdoor shade, it begins from the COVID-19 because of the six feet distancing. That's how it became. And right now, COVID-19 is lifted up. It should be disappeared. But no matter what it is, because the business has not been, you know, recruited, therefore we need extra space for people to dine in, door and outdoor. I would say I would keep it as this for maybe a year, then renewing their license for another year. That's what I'm agree upon. Thank you. Outdoor dining was a blessing and a lifeline for restaurants during COVID-19 and quite frankly for us, it was great to be able to go out occasionally. I think they have outlived their usefulness. I think they cause disruption in traffic. They are a hazard when they block bike lanes. They take up pedestrian space and, and there are often restaurants where I see pedestrians have to get on the street to actually cross the restaurant. Um, it's of course a, a huge issue for the sanitation department which has led, led to the, um, the rodent issue that we're seeing across the city. I think they need to be regulated and licensed. There are places where it's appropriate, where there are white sidewalks, where, where there are strictly regulated closing times, uh, noise regulations in place, etc. But I think overall it, it's time they were gone. Okay. Uh, we have two more questions, okay? This is on education. This is a good question from the audience. Uh, the schools in our district consistently rank low for all relevant metrics. Why do you think this is the case and what can be done and what would you do to address this problem? So, um, I've been an education advocate for, for many years um, and I believe that parents need choice. I believe we need more rigorous education, and I have been deeply disappointed with the fact, with, with the past administration lowering standards consistently for education, and I have been deeply disappointed with this administration saying that they were going to address it and reneging on those those promises. Um, their, their promises of increasing GNT seats we haven't really seen. We haven't seen high quality programming. And this is not just a District 1 issue, though District 1 does worse than many in Manhattan. But citywide, our scores are appalling. We spend more money than any other city per student, $37,000. Um, and 40% of fourth graders are not reading at grade level. Overall, our education system needs a huge overhaul and it's a top priority of mine. I think it's unfortunate that our great city spends so much money on education per student and we are not getting the results we need. Um, recently, the chancellor promoted uh, phonics back into our school system and I think that that is something that is welcome. Um, what I see is um, we need to, for those that are still, that are in the education system now, we need to really help them with um, enrichment programs, with after school help, 
I'm a volunteer at a place for kids, and we work with um, immigrant families, immigrant children who um, really during COVID had um, COVID learning loss, and we are helping them with their homework, with their uh, reading comprehension and math. And I think that that is what we need to do is fund um, enrichment and after school programs to get the students that are currently in the system um, who, you know, have um, standards lower um, capital. I would like to see the metrics that this person is referring to because we have amazing schools in District 1. Shum 1 school, PS20, PS142, these are schools that people want their kids to go to. And so I would like to see those metrics. I do think our schools have been disinvested in. When you look at some of the capital needs in our school, whether it's functioning bathrooms or playgrounds that swings don't work, or teachers that don't even have air conditioners or heaters in their classrooms, that's how we're gonna improve uh, our metrics, is making sure that we build a safe, functioning space for our kids to actually learn. We still have classrooms that don't have uh, a TV screen or a smart board for kids to learn, like kids should be learning in 2023. And that's why my office has prioritized that with a lot of our capital funds. We recently announced that we gave $400,000 to PS130 to upgrade their technology and their playground. We gave Junior High School 56 $2 million to repair their schools and their playground as well. Hi, I am a single mom with my child in a public school. So I love this topic and I'm glad I have a chance to address it. I was elected Communication Education Council two years ago in 2021 because I love education. And I myself receive a lot of education and I want my son to receive very good education. Right now, our public schools are facing a lot of issues. And one of them is we need creative solutions. When we look at our kids, I believe, I believe every children is endowed with talents that they are unique to them. So if you have a cookie cut curriculum, you are not going to help every children because the children are not cookies. So we need to have mental school back. We need to have creative after school programs. We need to have community based, skill based classes to allow them to learn art, to learn different type of skills and prepare for them to have a successful life. Thank you. I'm a special education teacher. I would say I agree with you know um, Christopher Marte because you know truly I'm just saying you know the truth. I don't have an air conditioning in my classroom. Be honest. I only have an air purifier because of COVID-19. And then I have a fan which is only $19.99. $19.99. You know we really need a budget. And these kids over the summer in May, which is the summer is coming up, you know, they are very hot. The window only allows to open halfway. You know, it's not allowed to open full way. So, you know, we are blasting hot. Sometimes, you know, the principal has to be agree with the teacher saying that all students have to wear white shirts only, but not thick shirts. You know, because the thick shirts usually happens back in September and never change their uniform. 
I think they, they have to be considered about the enrollment. Yes, you know, they are pretty low enrollment because we need the system, we need the Board of Education system change. Thank you. Okay, um, last question, and it's sort of, you know, relevant to sort of end on a sort of Rikers-ish question. The question is, now that MDC, Manhattan Detention Center, is fully gutted, how are you going to deal with the aftermath? We can start at that and come down if you want. Now that the Manhattan Detention Center is fully gutted, how will you deal with the aftermath? Well, the detention, talking about, you know, um, I have a relative that got caught recently because, you know, he's very active and jumping on people's car. And then he got caught for less than 20 hours. He get out, you know, right away after he didn't see the judge. So then he has to go back to the court date, which is on the 21st next month. So therefore, you know, going back to this detention, I think that the judicial and the judges have to be discussed with the lawmakers to make the law straighten out and we, you know, the streets is not safe enough. People got killed. Think about it. You know, if I walk outside right now every second after this, this meeting, I may get killed. So, you know, think about the lawmakers, discuss with all these laws, with the judicial, you know, make it not simple, make it harder for them that, you know, give them fines, you know, like they can't even afford it. You know, think about it, because I really, you know, not being safe out here. Thank you. So we need to create a culture of uh, dignity, and then we need to create a culture for the people who committed crimes to have a chance to understand what is the right and what is wrong. So with the leading to uh, Susan Lee and Christopher Monte, uh, these two leading uh, Democrat uh, candidates, they support prostitution, legalized prostitution, they support not visiting the bail reform, all these things are creating a culture that is vested with crime. It's like opening the door for crimes to come in into my district and into New York. So we shouldn't be supporting these issues and they are on record supporting. So I don't know why we keep on voting again and again the people that pretend to be moderate and pretend to be care for our community yet at the end, we are voting for these things on the ballot. So I just want to highlight these. I know a lot of you may not know that. Thank you. Okay, I, I'm going to give you guys 90 each because that is a sort of bottle. 90, 90. I'm just going to answer the question then. Because... Sure, go okay. <laughs> um, Yes, the Manhattan Detention Center has been gutted, but it's mostly because of abatement of asbestos. What we've been advocating for is adaptive reuse of the space not to demolish the building, to build the world's tallest jail, but to just use the site there already as it is and make it a modern human facility. How do we know it can work? We got the original architect and engineer of the tombs to write a letter to the mayor saying that this is possible. We've been working with international architects, engineers that have all signed on to a letter that says adaptive reuse is the best way to move forward for this, not only to save money, but to save time so we can close Rikers Island and make sure that we have a humane criminal justice system. Susan, if you want to rebut that, uh, you have 90 if you want us to go on. Okay, I'm not going to rebut that because Chris didn't either. So. Um, so with the Borough Base Jail, I think that 
you know, what we can is negotiate with the mayor's office, perhaps to build um, to its, its existing current level. I think what the broader issue we need to talk about is um, reimagining what Rikers would be. Oftentimes we talk about the adjudication process, and I think that we can, at the time of COVID, we started video conferencing that could speed up the adjudication process. We talk about transporting um, inmates to detainees to downtown Manhattan, how it's expensive, or how um, families make it hard for them to visit. Um, I think that we need to perhaps think about having courthouses at Rikers Island, have the judges go there instead of transporting detainees back and forth. I think that when you look at um, our fiscal um, health right now, our, we really need to look at what is the efficient way to conduct government business. Um, I think the breaking down of the de detention center is yet another example of how um, decisions are made that do not take into account uh, the feelings of communities of color that are resource poor. We see this again and again. Uh, but I still believe that it's not too late. Uh, if we have a council member who has good relationships with City Hall and can work together, I think it is not too late. We see decisions being reversed all the time in City Hall. And I, and I believe it's not too late yet because there's no mega jail up there yet. Okay. Um, let's kind of down that way if you don't mind work our way down. So this is your closing statement in the interest of time. And I think most of us have kind of really gotten to know each of you and all your platforms. So I'm going to cut this to 30 seconds per candidate. 30 seconds of closing statements, the floor is yours. Oh, closing statements? My name is Pui Stewart. I'm running for City Council District 1. You know, you gotta think about who do you vote. You want the best for the city? You want the best for the, in the community? You can vote whoever you want. I wish all the best to all the candidates. Thank you. Hello, New York. Again, I want you to... It, Think about it. I want you to think about it. Uh, this is APA voice. As Asians, if you don't speak English, uh, a woman, they can be cheated, and then they will be raped. They will be uh, put into prostitution if they were, when they are applying for a job. These things happened, and we need to really know. So, do you really want to support candidates who support legalized prostitution? Do you really want the direction of the city going? Do you want to feel unsafe? So it's really not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about our community and uh, our city council, what we can do to change the culture, to change the narrative. Thank you, I ask for your vote. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for everyone for staying for two hours and listening to our platform. I think this is how you create a good democracy. I've been proud to be your council member that not only such promises, but actually delivers. We planted over 100 trees this year. We built three parks. We funded the Department of Sanitation. We invested in our schools. We did what we said we would. And that's why I'm here today, to continue to do the work. And I'll be honored and humble to have your vote on June 27th, because we're just getting started. Thank you.
Thank you everyone for being here. I want to thank um, our, our, my fellow candidates for um, being here. I am running for city council because I believe we need a public servant who really serves the ideals of our constituents, our, their needs. And I want to restore what is great in our city, such as children with quality education, open space for them to play, seniors to retire in the community they help build and raise their families, revitalize small businesses and invest in our local economy. And I will work collectively to address these issues. Lastly, I was endorsed just now by DC 37 today. UDO, Illinois Legacy, and Illinois Jordan. Thank you. I'm running for city council because I believe representation. It was informative. This was the EPA Voice Candidate Forum for.